Another day, another big bank settlement. You're in the right place, folks, because this is where the money is. I'm Allison Southwick and I am joined today by John Maxfield over in Portland, Oregon. Hey John, how you doing? I'm doing great, thanks Allison. Oh great, great to have you here. Before we started and sat down here to start taping, we were talking about how credit default swaps are just like food trucks. <laughs> so my point was that everyone claims that they invented the food truck and you, your claim is that yeah, my, my claim is that your first of all, your claim is much more interesting than my claim. Let's be honest. Um, but I, I was just making an analogy. You know, I read I read a lot about banks. It's you know, I wouldn't recommend it to the to the average person. Um, but one of the things you come across that everybody in the world seems to claim that they know somebody or they know the organization that that invented the credit default swap, which is a fancy derivative that allows banks to take credit risk off of their balance sheet and transfer it to somebody else. It, it, it's a really boring and nuanced topic. Uh, food trucks um, living in Portland, Oregon are, are much more interesting. Right, right. And so I argue that Portland, Oregon did not invent the food truck. And uh, yeah, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't dispute, I wouldn't dispute that. You know, I wish, I wish I could speak with authority on this topic, um, but I can't. Um, but what I will still say is, and I, and I said this to you before, before we started taping, is that I think it would be very difficult to quantitatively prove who invented the food truck. Right, right. So. May, we may never get down to the mystery of who invented credit default swaps or food trucks, but I think it's nice that there's a little overlap there between Portland and banking, aside from just you. Um, so today we're going to look at a few stories, most notably yet another big bank settlement. We're going to talk about Warren Buffett's recent acquisition, and then we're going to look at a potential disruptor to the banking system. So let's, let's start off with the big settlement. Six banks, most notably Citigroup and JPMorgan Chase. What's up? Up, Jamie Dimon have agreed to pay a total of 4.3 billion dollars over allegations that they tried to manipulate the foreign currency exchange. Regulators in the UK, US, and Switzerland actually joined forces to go after these banks. Um, apparently, they've been doing it for years. John, what have they been doing exactly? Well, now these are allegations, of course. Oh, sorry, they're allegations. Allegations, allegations that they're going to pay $4.3 billion to make go away. Right. Yes. So uh, we had a multiple traders at multiple banks working together to push up or push down foreign exchange rates, What, for example, the, the dollar trades against the British pound. And they were doing it for the purpose, and this is, this is, this is, the, this is the kicker, that only happens on Wall Street. They were doing it uh, to trigger their own clients' stop losses which would mean that the clients would then have to execute certain trades, which would then cause losses for the clients, but gains for the banks. That's so awesome. That's just amazing. Um, here's another fun fact from the Wall Street Journal as they covered this. Globally, lenders have racked up more than $200 billion in penalties in recent years stemming from investigations into miscon misconduct, including interest rate manipulation, sanctions violations, and improperly selling a variety of financial products. $200 billion. I need to stop saying billion in that strong way because I'm starting to annoy myself there. But it seems like every week there's another bank settlement and it's like, okay, put it on the pile. Just like, I mean, how endemic is this? I mean, I feel like I should be outraged, but I just, I just like, I end up calling it shenanigans. But like, seriously, like, will it ever stop? Is this how it's always been? And we're only just realizing, realizing it? What's, what's the bigger picture here? I guess I need help understanding. The fundamental question is, as the banks claim, is it a series of isolated incidences by rogue individuals within the banks, 
or is it a pattern of behavior that is somehow culturally intertwined with how these banks operate? And if you look at the history, I mean, you can go all the way back to the 1800s and see how Wall Street operates, and particularly in, 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 when it comes to trading. And you would be excused for concluding that this is an endemic nature of Wall Street. So let's just take, let's forget about the financial crisis, right? Let's just go in the past maybe three or four years. What have we seen? We've seen this big settlement with the Forex exchange, uh, uh, fixing Forex rates. We've seen the Libra settlement, so fixing interest rates. We've seen Bank of America settle a deal where they were accused of rigging municipal bond markets and other banks were involved in that as well. Um, JP Morgan has been accused and uh, paid a fine for rigging energy markets in California in the Midwest. So you can say, yeah, look, I mean, it is possible, of course, right, that these are isolated incidences. But when you look at these isolated incidences happening at the same banks in different trading divisions, you know, like I said before, you would be excused for wondering if, if there really is a, a more fundamental issue here. So if there is a more fundamental issue here, then what are we supposed to do about it? I mean, are these, is, is, I mean, for $200 billion in penalties in, the, in recent years. I actually don't know how far they're back they're going on this. But yeah, in recent years, $200, $200 billion. Is, I mean, is, is, is charging people money the issue? Is, is putting people in jail the next step if nothing changes? I mean, what, what are we supposed to do here to make them get in line? Well, we're approaching this from an investor standpoint, right? And so the question is, will, does this potentially endemic behavior impact long-term shareholder returns? And I think there's reason to believe that it does. So if you look at the best performing bank stocks over the last few decades, you have your Wells Fargo, your, your M&T Bank, your New York Community Bank shares, and your U.S. Bank Corp, none of those have significant trading operations. And they have just blown away your Citigroups, your J.P. Morgan Chase, and your Bank of Americas, I mean, by, by leaps and bounds. And one of the reasons, um, I think, is that they don't have this reputational risk or this risk that, that, that subjects their balance sheet to loss of capital. All right. So then your bottom line as a long-term investor is to just stay away from the JP Morgans and Citigroups of the world? The bottom line for an investor is this. So, so two points. First, there's reasonably that banks over the long run, as a group, don't make money. This is something that um, authors have noted in the past. So if you're going to invest in that sector, you have to be really selective about doing so. And if you're going to be selective about doing so, you should probably avoid the ones that expose you to excess risk. So stay with the safe traditional banks that have a long history of performing well for both their shareholders, their customers, um, and their employees. All right. Well, I'm sure we're not done talking about this because I'm sure there's going to be yet another bank settlement next week. So we can just move on. How's that sound? <laughs> You know, I'm sure, maybe not next week, the week after. Yeah, I'm sure this is not the last time. Yeah, yeah. So we'll, we'll get back to this more in the future. Um, let's move on and talk about Warren Buffett. As Patrick Morris wrote for Fool.com this week, Warren Buffett has bought America's beloved battery manufacturer for nearly $5 billion. So first off, I wasn't aware that we had a beloved battery manufacturer in this country, but apparently it's Duracell. Procter & Gamble has agreed to make a trade. Buffett gets Duracell in exchange for the $4.7 billion worth of P&G shares that he held. Um, we're talking about 53 million shares total. So why Duracell? Why is Procter & Gamble giving it up? Well, so Procter & Gamble is giving it up 
because it's, it's in the middle of this large uh, transformation where it's trying to slim down its operations, really focus in on what it does well, uh, you know, a few dozen brands, 50, 100 brands, something like that. Right now, I think it has 200 brands. So it's trying to drop its brand count significantly so it can really double down on what it does well. And Duracell evidently doesn't feel, it doesn't feel like Duracell is one of those core brands. Now, if you look on the Warren Buffett side, uh, why Warren Buffett would be interested in a company like this, but it has kind of all the trademarks of a traditional Warren Buffett stock. The, the principal thing that Warren Buffett is interested in when he's looking at investments is a durable competitive advantage. And Duracell has uh, almost certainly a durable competitive advantage. First, it has great brand recognition. Um, to your point, I, don't, I didn't know necessarily that there's a, the, a, the most beloved American battery company, but Duracell, certainly we know what Duracell is, right? Um, so that, that, it has that going in its favor. And then on top of that, it also has the fact that there are large barriers to entry to get into the battery manufacturing industry. Like you and I, Allison, um, I'm sure you wouldn't be overly interested in being a partner with me in any type of business operation, but if we did decide to get into a business, um, I would think that we wouldn't have the money behind us to get into uh, the battery manufacturing industry. Let's start with a food truck and then we'll work our way up to, to battery manufacturer. So taxes are kind of kryptonite if you want to have a lively conversation, but let's just go for it because there actually is kind of an interesting exchange here. So like I said, Buffett is exchanging shares that Berkshire held of P&G in exchange for Duracell. Like he's getting Duracell like essentially as a company that he's now going to have. So it's kind of a different way of doing doing business here and there are some tax benefits. So I'm going to try not to fall asleep while you explain the tax benefits. So this is a, just an, an amazing financial engineering maneuver by Buffett. And these are called cash rich split offs and something like three dozen of them have been done in the last couple of decades. So this is what it consists of. So Buffett owns $4.7 billion of the P&G stock right now. He got that principally through P&G's acquisition of Gillette, the, the razor company, which Buffett had a large position in before P&G acquired it. Well, Buffett's basis in that stock, and the basis is what he paid for it originally, was $336 million. Okay, so now he's sitting on $4.7 billion wow. of the stock. So that equates to an enormous gain. And if Buffett, or Berkshire rather, would ever to sell that stock, it would have a huge capital gains tax. And the, the tax experts that I've seen quoted think it would be somewhere along the lines of 38%. So when you consider that by buying, effectively buying Duracell, by just giving P&G that stock, as opposed to selling that stock and then say buying something else, it's estimated that Buffett is going to save somewhere along the lines of, or Berkshire rather, is going to save somewhere along the lines of $1.7 billion in taxes. So you could just back that $1.7 billion out of that $4.7 billion you know, purchase price, and Buffett is basically getting Duracell, which he thinks is worth $4.7 billion for um, $3 billion. All right, not, not, not a bad deal, and, and I didn't get bored at all having you explain the tax implications to me there. All right, let's move on to our last story. If you've ever shopped at a hipster craft fair or even a local small business, You've probably paid with your credit card, not through a cash register, but through the merchant's iPad when they swipe your card through a little white square adapter that goes in the, in the jack, and that's Square. And so, John, you've been digging into Square and what they've been doing because it has a, it's, it's known as a pretty huge disruptor when it comes to payments, but it's now moving into the banking space by offering financing 
to its merchant customers. So what exactly is Square doing? Like, how are they doing it? Because it's not, it's not necessarily exactly how a bank would do it. Well, Square sits in this really good position if you want to know a little bit about somebody's credit rating. Because it is processing you know, millions of its merchants' transactions. So it sees their cash flow. It sees their revenue growth. It sees how they're doing on a sales basis. So by using that data, you know, Square basically sat back and said, look, we can ascertain some, which businesses of these would be the best credit risks for us to take if we wanted to get into the lending business. So what they're doing is they're taking, they're moving from the payment space, so processing transactions, and they're going to diversify their business model into lending. Now they're not actually calling it lending, they're calling it cash advances. So what they'll do is they'll, they'll advance cash to one of its merchant customers, they're one of their, their best merchant customers, and in return, the merchant customer will sell a set percentage of future cash receipts. And those cash receipts are supposed to uh, take care of the entire uh, loan amount, if you will, within 10 months. So it's a great deal for Square. They're hedging their bets, and they're moving into the banking industry in the same way that they've moved into the payment space. So you think the banking space is ripe for disruption. So do you think this has a real opportunity to take off here? You know, it remains to be seen, right? I mean, anytime you are trying to move against a large entrenched position like the banks are, you know, the odds are against you. However, to your point, you know, to go back to the very first segment that we talked about, what's going on, how the banks are treating their foreign exchange customers, well, that's not unique to how they're treating foreign exchange customers. As we learned over the last decades, they've treated a lot of their customers um, pretty poorly. So when you look at that, you, it, it seems ripe for disruption just, just because of that. Whereas Square is coming in, they're treating merchants, at least they seem to be treating merchants fairly. They're providing them a great value for their payments processing transactions, and they're making money available relatively quickly to businesses that want to grow that may otherwise be shut out of the banking industry. So I think that, you know, First of all, the industry is indeed, I believe, ripe for disruption, and Square has shown that it's able to do it in the payment space. So if it's possible to do it, I think Square is, in a, is, is certainly one of the players that could reasonably uh, accomplish that. All right, a company to keep an eye on. Now, Square is not a publicly traded company, but if it were, would you invest in them? Well, you'd need to take a look at their financials to make you know, a rational decision about that. But they have had success in the payment space, and their founder had success with Twitter. Now, Twitter's still working through a number of things in its own right, but you know, they're certainly a company that you'd want to take a look at more deeply to see if it's something that um, merits an actual investment. All right, so I'm not going to get a straight answer from you. That's okay. I kind of sprung <laughs> that question on you. <laughs> All right, well, that's going to do it for today. If you're looking for more analysis into Buffett and banks, you can check us out on fool.com for more articles from John Maxfield and even Patrick Morris, who is declaring our beloved battery Duracell. Um, head over to fool.com for more coverage on banks, Buffett, and other industries that you love. For John Maxfield, I'm Allison Southwick. Fool on.